0: I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. As you turn there, I have a question for you. Have you ever had someone spit in your face? You don't have to raise your hand. But if it's happened more than once, I want to talk to you afterwards. Because there might be some things we need to work through. Seriously, there's not many things more humiliating to be on the receiving end of. To have someone spit in your face. And from the other side, I won't ask you to admit if you've spit in someone's face, but that's a bold act, isn't it? Maybe you've heard the expression, spitting in the face of God. That's an expression that carries some weight, doesn't it? Like I've already said, it's no small thing to spit in the face of another person. It's a bold act, but it's a whole other level to think of spitting in the face of God himself. It's an expression that conveys the absolute arrogance, complete disregard for God, disregard for his position, disregard for his glory, disregard for his authority. But what if it was more than an expression? What would happen if someone actually spit in the face of God? Well, this morning we come to a scene where this happens, a time when a crowd gathers and literally takes turns spitting on God. It's unbelievable. It's worth our time to consider what kind of person would do such a thing. But that's really the the smaller part of the story. The part that's most worth our time is the response of God. How does God respond when spat upon? And what does it mean for us? So we come to Mark 15. We're picking up where we left off last week. So let me remind you where we are in the scriptures. It was a Thursday night when Jesus was arrested. Remember, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying with his disciples while he was praying. They were sleeping. It was late at night when Judas arrives with a crowd, prepared to take Jesus into custody to arrest him. His arrest on that Thursday night, Friday morning, was followed by this middle-of-the-night trial. And this was the Jewish trial. This was his own people, the high priest, the Sanhedrin. And they found him guilty of blasphemy and called for death. But there was a problem. Remember, we talked about this. The problem was the Jews did not have the right to kill Execution was not something that was allowed to them by the Romans. so, first thing in the morning, early on Friday, they take Jesus to stand before the Roman governor of Judea, Pilate. And if you were with us last week, remember that Pilate didn't have the same pre-existing hatred as the Jews did for Jesus. He was seeing things a little more open-handedly and As he considered the case, he didn't find Jesus worthy of death. Remember, we asked the question last week, who is Jesus and what are we going to do with him? And this was Pilate's question to answer. Who is he and what am I going to do with him? And at first, his response was, I don't find any reason why this man should be put to death. But in spite of his judgment and conscience, Pilate gave in to the appeals of the crowd. If you have your Bibles open, you can see in verse 15, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So for the sake of public opinion, for the sake of keeping the peace, Pilate sends Jesus to die. And last week, I didn't take any time to talk about that phrase, having scourged Jesus. A short, small phrase, but no small thing in reality. It was brutal. A Roman scourging meant that someone's arms were tied to a post, their back exposed. And Roman soldiers would take turns beating the person with a whip. But not just any whip, a whip that had pieces of bone and metal woven into it. It's an act of brutality that's hard to imagine. The jagged, sharp whip hitting and dragging it across someone's back, pulling the flesh apart. And that's as far as I'll go in the description. But what you need to know as we come to our passage this morning is that not only has Jesus been sentenced, not only has he been up all night, not only has he been abandoned by his disciples, but he's been flogged, whipped, and beaten. So as we come to our scene this morning, he is in rough shape already but he's been handed over to the Roman soldiers who are going to continue torturing him. And before we read our text, two things I want us to consider this morning. On one side, we have men who are doing the most shameful thing imaginable. They're having their way with the Son of God, mocking, insulting, spitting the creator of the world. It's shameful, and it should leave us stunned. The God-man, rejected, mocked, beaten as a heinous criminal. On the other side, we consider the response of Christ. Remember, the goal of these guys is to shame him. Yet his goal is to take the shame of sinners. So first, we'll consider the mocking of Christ, these soldiers who sinfully mock him and then we'll consider the humility of Christ, the one who came to endure shame and death for us. If you have your Bibles, we're in Mark 15. We're going to read verses 16 to 20. Hear the word of God. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down to him in homage. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We ask that God will be honored and do his work in us through the reading and hearing of his word. Now, before we go further, I feel like I say this a lot. I, I was writing this down and thought, I think I say this a lot. You can tell me later. Sometimes I fear that we are robbed from the weight of the scriptures by familiarity. But what we just read should horrify us, should leave us stunned. I think anger is a justified response. Grief and sadness would be appropriate. But we all, I think, have heard the story. We know the reality. And so part of my goal this morning is to help us just kind of sit and consider what we have here. That. God himself in flesh, so creator of all things. He made everything you see, everything you are. He made it. He sustains all things with the word of his mouth. He is, in fact, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign almighty one. And yet, here he is on earth in flesh like ours, being mocked and tortured by his own people whom he created. These are people who are only living because he has given them breath. It's hard to describe, but it's something we should try to keep in front of us that these men are mocking and torturing, for their own entertainment's sake, God Almighty. And while they may be doing so in ignorance, not truly knowing who he is, the fact is it happened. I said, as we go through the text, I want to come at it from these two different angles, both of which I think are important. First, we see the atrocity, these men mocking Christ, but we stop short if we only see this as something that they do. What I want us to consider this morning and, is that we may be more like these men than we care to admit. We all, in our own ways, at times, do things that mock God. that's something we have to reckon with. So we'll spend time this morning talking about how we, like them, fail to see Jesus rightly and may, through the way we live and act, mock him. Then second, we'll consider the way Christ responds, his humility, his submission, and realize that because of what he did, God mockers like us can have hope. We should remember that while the soldiers thought they were the ones in control, Jesus was actually accomplishing exactly what he set out to accomplish. And for that, we should be so, so thankful. We pick up in verse 16. And what we see here is Jesus in the hand of Roman soldiers. Mark says, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And if you go to any normal Bible commentary, you're going to get two or three pages, and they're going to try to figure out where he was. Um, where this palace was, whose palace it was, Uh, most likely Herod's palace there in Jerusalem. But what we see is that Pilate has given his verdict, and these soldiers come together, and they're just going to have some fun. To give you some context, a battalion of soldiers is 600 men. Now, whether all 600 were actually there, we don't know that for sure, but I think what Mark's telling us in verse 16 is this is, this is not just one or two rogue and demented soldiers. This is a large group, and they've come together to mock and shame this convicted man, which was not terribly unusual. Their job is to kill him, but it was common for Roman soldiers to take a certain level of pleasure in this pre-crucifixion torture. And of course, geez, if you're going to pick on someone, this guy's a good candidate. Do you remember the charge? king of the Jews. The fact that Jesus had claimed to be a king, this was something the soldiers thought, we can work with that, right? It gives them something to exploit. So we have the scene in our mind, Jesus surrounded by soldiers. He's already in bad shape. He's been scourged, beaten. He's in pain. But these soldiers take this possibly half-dead man and begin this over-the-top charade of mockery. King of the Jews, we can work with that. Someone grab that robe. We're told they bring a purple robe and they put it on his back, and purple's on purpose. Purple's a color that signifies royalty. Kings and royals wore purple, so it's fitting. A purple robe on the back of the one who claims to be king. Let's dress him like a king. It's mockery, but it's also painful because the scourging. His back ripped open, and now this cloth laid on top of open wounds. What else can we do? What if we made him a crown? Oh, let's use thorns. And they fashion a crown out of thorns that they fit onto his head, which most likely dug in as it was pushed on. Monday, the boys and I were hiking. And I was going along and I hit the ground in a second because something stabbed my foot that I thought was a nail. It turned out to just be a thorn. Threw my shoe into my foot. And even today, a week later, I feel it. Jesus had a crown of thorns. Not that it just went in and out of his foot real quick. Thorns pushed on to his head. And you have to imagine the soldiers were proud. Look at him. King. He needs a scepter. The Gospel of Matthew tells us they take a, a reed, a, I think for me I'm thinking bamboo, right, this long stick. They put it in his hand just to top it off his robe, his crown, his scepter. Wait, king, give me that scepter back. And they begin, Mark tells us, to hit him over the head with it. They salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Nothing about it sincere. It's mocking laughter. And you know how crowds work, don't you? They feed off one another. All it takes is one bold man to do something crazy and The next one's in line to do one better. They kneel down in front of him, pretending to show him honor, but it's all a cruel joke. These men don't see Jesus as anything but a crazy man who made crazy claims, someone they can use for a laugh before they have to do their dirty work of crucifixion. They beat him with the reed, and they spit on him. This disgusting sign of arrogance. No matter who the person is, it's shameful to spit on someone. But of course, we know it's far more shameful than any of them understood. Because we know this is far more than a crazy man making wild claims. This is the Son of God. They are mockingly dressing the one who hung the stars, hitting the head of the one who's the head over all things, spitting on the one who knows all, sees all, and who will judge. All. it's just a few verses. It's plain just to read it. But I think it's worth taking the time to acknowledge how disgraceful and shameful the scene is. What these did, men did to Christ, it's unthinkable for us. But as we think about the unthinkable, I, I do want to push us to consider that we are more like them than we care to admit. That in a sense, these soldiers represent us all. They represent all of us who as sinful people fail to see Jesus as the true king. We don't acknowledge his kingship. We disregard his authority. And in our actions, and our thoughts, we mock him. Now, to be fair, I've been around most of you a lot. And I don't know that I've ever heard of any of you openly mocking God, denying his authority, questioning his rule. But none of us were born seeing God for who he is or worshiping in the way he deserves. He's always been king, but you have not always acknowledged his authority. Neither have I. Just like these men were blind to see Jesus for who he is, We are all born blind to the truth about God and none of us honor him as we should. Friends, every one of us have lived before him in shameful ways. We mock him with the pride of our hearts. We reject his authority as we live with jealousy. Those thoughts of lust you harbor, it's a mocking of God who created us to live differently. He is the true king, but most of us are guilty of living as though we're the ones who have the authority. Again, I'm thankful that my friends, you don't mock God openly, but I fear that more of it goes on in our hearts than we care to admit. How often do you look at your situation and think, this is not the way it should be, right? This is not the way the story should have been written. And when we say that, we're saying to a sovereign God who has given us our situation, you're not wise. I should be king. You're king and this is what you've done? We question his goodness. We wonder about his plan. What we see in Mark 15 is men who view Jesus as weak and foolish. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. As we call his plans, weak and foolish. We may not say it out loud, but we wonder if he knows what he's doing. We wonder if he really is sovereign, if he really is good, if he really is kind. These are temptations we all deal with. None of us are exempt. We all have reasons to be ashamed because we all position ourselves at times against God. We mock his authority and we deny his place as king. I was tempted to take this passage and move it on, and just we'll consider the whole crucifixion at once, but I couldn't get past this. The King of Kings being spat upon. And it grieves me to consider that there are ways that I do the same. But thankfully, there is more to this text than a reminder of how sinful you are. What we also see is what Christ is doing so that sinners like us can be reconciled to God. We see the way Jesus responds to the mockery. Now, there's whole sermons to be preached on God's response to people who mock him. But can we just look at this scene here? What does Jesus do here as these men mock him and beat him and spit upon him? What we see here is that in this moment, in this mocking, Jesus allows it. And not because he has to. Oh, church, go back and read the rest of Mark and remember, he has the power to do whatever he wants. Remember when Jesus spoke? He's in that room and these guys lower a man down in front of him. A man who's never walked, but Jesus speaks and he gets up. How about the guy that Jesus touched his eyes And a man who couldn't see now sees the world clearly. On that boat with his disciples, they're scared. You've been in some rough storms, and you've never thought of speaking and stopping it. But with a word, the sea goes calm. Church, don't be fooled. These men weren't in control. He was in control the whole time, and he allowed it. This is why he came, to be rejected and shamed, scourged and mocked, beaten and crucified. We can hear the voice of Jesus in Psalm 22. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. It was foretold. He knew it was coming, and he walked into it knowingly, willingly. He had told his disciples not long before exactly what would happen. We can go back again to Mark chapter 10. It says, taking the 12, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, me, I'll be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and then deliver him over to the Gentiles, they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Jesus told his disciples this. Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. I'll be delivered over to the Jews. They'll find me guilty. They'll deliver me over to the Gentiles who will condemn me to death. And then I'm gonna be spit on and flogged and beaten. And what I want you to see is Jesus, it's not just that he knew the future but that he walked willingly towards it when he did not have to. Isaiah 50, again, I love hearing the voice of Christ in the Old Testament. Isaiah 50, verse 5. Hear Jesus saying these things. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. That's an important passage. What we're told is that Jesus gave himself over to suffering and shame willingly, but that he did so with purpose. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. After being spit upon, after having his beard pulled out, after having his back beaten, he says, that's not disgrace because I've set my face like flint. I know I shall not be put to shame. What's he saying? We sang about it a while ago, didn't we? Highly exalted. Given the name above every name because of what he's accomplished for his people. Isaiah 53 says it best. Aren't you glad we have Isaiah 53? And he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All of you, like sheep, have gone astray. You have turned, every one of you, to your own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. What we see in the word of the prophets, in the words of Christ, is that this was the plan all along, that he would be rejected and killed so that he would be able to offer salvation to all who believe. I think you understand that. We've come in with an understanding of the gospel, but think about how unbelievable it is. We probably don't spend enough time thinking about the contrast between who Jesus is and how he allowed himself to be treated. You wouldn't let yourself be treated like that if you had a choice. If someone was treating your kid that way, you'd be the first to step up and stop them. But the father sends his son and the son goes willingly. We probably don't think enough about the place that Jesus held before he came to earth. What he left and what he entered. I was was just thinking about the kingship of Christ, knowing that he had a place before he came here. Maybe that's what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. you remember that? When Isaiah sees the Lord, it says in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What we have here is a glimpse into the throne room of God, a glimpse of the king on his throne. Here he is in all of his glory, the king over all. And yet we read together from Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. I don't think we spend enough time thinking about that transition from throne to manger to being surrounded by Roman soldiers who will spit on him and mock him, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And read that verse backwards. You have the promised spirit through faith. You've been given the blessing of Abraham because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree and he became that curse for you. Born under the curse, deserving of death, but Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse. What we see in Galatians 3, what we see in Isaiah 53 is this idea of substitution. Jesus took our place, took our curse, took what you deserve. Isaiah says he took on your shame. If you don't feel shame for the way you've lived or the things you've done, then you don't understand sin or the weight of it. And if you need help understanding the weight of it, know this, that the soldiers who surrounded Christ, they represent us. And as we consider what they did and what they deserve for what they did, this is us. All of us are born as God-mockers, deserving of wrath, and yet Jesus came and did what he did, allowed himself to be spat upon so that we could be saved. One pastor said it this way. Sometimes I can't write a good sentence, so I take someone else's. The blasphemous cruelty of Jesus' enemies stands in stunning contrast to the infinite mercy of God who allowed his son to suffer unspeakable humiliation, And death in order to save sinners, which includes blasphemers and murderers. I said at the beginning, we have two things here. First, we see the mockers who are more like us than we care to admit. And then we see Jesus who allowed himself to be mocked and even killed so that we can be forgiven. The mockers forgiven by the mocked one. I hope you recognize this is the very heart of what we believe and proclaim. We are great sinners who deserve a great punishment, but Jesus is a great savior who has provided a great salvation through great suffering. And that's enough. I could stop and say amen, and I think we all have reason to sing. But my fear, friends, is that you know the gospel, which is basically what we've considered this morning who we are and what we deserve and what God has done to reconcile us to God. You know the gospel, and I do too. But yet most of us live Monday to Saturday and Sunday afternoon, and we never know how that actually connects to today. And I don't know that I have the time or even the ability to connect it as well as I would hope. But let me give you three things, three ways we should respond to what we've considered about the gospel this morning. First, some of us need to recognize that we have been living in ways that mock Christ's authority. And it happens in ways that aren't nearly as overt as what we saw in our text this morning. Maybe you hear the story of men mocking Jesus and you recognize there's ways I do the same when I let my mind go to inappropriate places, when I grab the reins of my life and decide that I'm the one in control and no one will tell me how to do it. You can fill in the blank with the way you recognize that you've tried to live as if you're the one in charge. And If it's occurring to you this morning that you have been mocking the kingship of Christ, let me tell you, there is something you can do. The whole point of this story is that Jesus came to suffer and die so that you can be forgiven. If you know that you've been living in defiance against the king, know that he died so that you can be forgiven for that defiance. And this morning, you have the opportunity to repent of your sins and to know that you'll be forgiven. Even if you have spit in the face of God... The work of Christ is sufficient to forgive. And I just want to encourage you to think about where, what's that place in my life? Because we all have them, friends. We all have them. These places where we have taken our stand and said, he can have the rest of it, but he can't have this. Friends, would you allow yourself to be seen as a soldier spitting in the face of God and recognize the weight of your defiance. I've already kind of moved into the second one here. First is repentance. The second response is to acknowledge that he is the true king and to submit to him in humility and obedience, which is something that we should all be thinking about each and every day. One of our main hopes each morning should be, God, would you let me to see you as the king today? To see you for who you are and to submit to you. But so often we just get up and we go, don't we? We don't think about who's, who we're living for. We just think about what we need and what we want and we go out and we try to get it with no regard for the one who's truly over all things. And so I just want to push you to ask the question, where am I trying to deny Jesus full authority in my life? Maybe it's the way you allow your mind to wander to evil places. Maybe it's the way you handle your time. It's a tough one, isn't it? To think that God has given us our time to be used for him. And yet sometimes we are convinced most of the time maybe that it's our time to use as we want and we don't submit our time to the one who's given it. Same can be said for our finances. We all have ways where we are slow to submit fully to Christ. For some, it's the lack of willingness to offer forgiveness, knowing the command of Christ that he's called us to forgive, and yet we keep digging in our heels, deciding that he can have it all, but not this. My prayer is that God would use our time in Mark 15 to remind us that we don't want to be the kind of person who mocks Jesus and who won't acknowledge him as the king. Instead, we should be a people who submit to him in humility. Obedience, trusting that His way is right and best. Lastly, as we think about this passage and the sacrifice of Christ, my hope would be that we would grow in gratitude and worship. I mentioned earlier the danger of familiarity, it's real. (laughs) I grew up in the church, I spend much of my week thinking and talking about the gospel. I sense this danger the danger of familiarity. Even in this sermon, (laughs) I've wondered, they know this, right? They know the story. And guard us, Lord guard us. May we never be so familiar with the death of Christ that we lose our sense of awe and wonder and gratitude and worship. That's why I wanna push myself and I wanna push you not only to understand the event, but the, the weight of it, how deserving we are, that we are like the soldiers who mocked, that you don't naturally see Christ as you should, and yet he came and he died so that you can be forgiven. And I hope that as we start to grasp that, it would lead us to gratitude and our gratitude would lead to worship and our worship would lead to obedience and our obedience would lead to a full life of submission where God could use us so that his name could be hallowed in our world. We're gonna sing here in a minute. And I hope that's a first step for us as we proclaim with our mouths the authority of Christ. And then I pray that we would take the next step of going out into our day, even today, a day off, a day of relaxing and thinking, how can I today submit to Christ as king? It might be harder tomorrow at work, but the challenge is for then too. May we get to a place where our hearts and minds are fully consumed with him and his authority. And that we desire and joyfully submit Isaiah 50 says that Jesus gave his back to those who would strike. He gave his cheeks to those who would pull out the beard. He did not hide his face from disgrace or spitting. May we see his sacrifice and respond in repentance, submission, gratitude, and worship. Jesus is king. Let's honor him as king. Would you join me in prayer? god I, I I do confess this struggle with familiarity. I admit that I had to work hard this week to feel the significance of what you endured. I pray that you would continue to work in me to see the the length that you went to from throne to manger to mocking to the cross? Would you overwhelm us with the sense of what you did? And would you allow that sense of awe to lead to gratitude and to lead to a desire to submit to you no matter the cost? Would you help us to see you as king And God, something we didn't consider this morning is that when we submit to you, you, you give joy and contentment and peace. And there is great, great blessing for those who do these things. And while we don't do them necessarily for the blessing, God, I, I thank you for that reality that there is joy in acknowledging you as king and living that way. So would you give us joy? Would you give us obedient hearts? Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your rule. Thank you that we know that no matter what happens today, it is under your care. Would you help us to trust you? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.